Olá e bem-vindo ao Chipping Away, onde os nossos apresentadores, Akash e Durga, viajam no mundo da arqueológica e antropologia da Ásia do Sul. Depois do nosso último episódio, vamos discutir hoje diretamente do colonialismo. E onde podemos começar? Acho que há um lugar melhor do que Goa Português. Claro que não. Então, vamos lá? Welcome back to part 3 of our Independence Day special, Boats, Banners and Beyond. And as you might have guessed, we are still talking about Portuguese colonialism in South Asia. In our last episode, we looked at the factors that led to the coming of Portuguese in South Asia and their rising sphere of influence along the west coast of India. Their literal position, their economy and other aspects that were beautifully etched out by our guest speakers Amanda and Andre. We are again joined by our guest speakers. We have with us Amanda Ataid, who is a linguist and has worked on the language contact between Portuguese and languages on the Western coast, especially Marathi and Kokni. She will talk a little more about the social and linguistic significance of these interactions. And we also have with us Dr. Andre Baptista, who has worked on Portuguese fortifications and architecture and the influence of contact with Portuguese in Northern Kokan. I welcome them again. So without further ado, let's jump in and take a look at these multi-layered complexities and narratives that wait for us to unravel. Let's peel away some of these layers and probably, you know, look at some of these examples of Portuguese contact and its impact on the South Asian people and the record. As you said, I mean, one place where you can start off is with regards to the material culture, food, architecture, daily life. How do we see the impact left behind? I think it's important to look at the sort of phases or stages of social cultural integration. So earlier we talked about the different orders that came in. By the early 1600s and the Franciscans come in, you have a change in the way the colonizers deal with the colonized. And at that time, because of this need that was seen, to sort of root out the indigenous customs by a certain set of people, of course, but root out certain indigenous customs or older ways or traditions or customs that did not fit within their way of things. Along with this also comes this idea where if you're coming into a place and you want to integrate a community, but you also want to be accepted, you sort of have to find a way to get around it, right? So one of the things that they initially did that you see is that the Portuguese approached people of the higher caste or the upper classes and one of the ways to get them to convert was to let them keep their social status and give them added benefits of accepting to be part of a new system and these benefits are things like getting good positions in the government or the administration sort of like a similar thing that you see with the English Initially, converting to the new faith was also getting a higher social status. It was getting a certain number of privileges. And what happens is that you're not professing a new faith as much as you're professing a whole new way of life. And these outward customs where a certain manner of dressing, a certain language that you speak uh, is associated with your higher social status. And this something that is important to note, which also plays the other way where there would be people who wouldn't want to be integrated and you'd have people fleeing once it gets to an oppressive stage. Linguistically speaking, it, it, it's interesting to see the difference between the kind of impact Portuguese had on Kunkuni, for example, 
or uh, the kind of languages that evolved so if when you look at korlai or diu uh, at the beginning you have intermarriage that is encouraged uh, between the early 1500s towards the early 1600s and so the legitimate offspring through marriage one leads to the, this whole new social rung so you have the kashtikurs the mishtikurs who are essentially the eurasians and they speak portuguese they are like the descendants or whatever but once you have a new order coming in where you no longer allow intermarriage but there is a legitimate offspring that continues to be part of social reality and the practice where you include this offspring within the church you've got a whole new group of people who are christians they are christians but they are of the lower social rung than their portuguese fathers uh, but they are outcasts to the rest of the society and so you find these people to be isolated and you find creoles that develop in these places now in a place like korlai the marathas take over and this particular community continues to exist the creole continues to exist whereas in a place like diu eventually this community climbs the social ladder so to speak and uh, it changes over time in goa uh, you did have a goan creole you have written evidence that such a spoken form existed but it was eventually wiped out because knowing portuguese or learning portuguese was given importance and it was made an official language of the administration it was made the official language of schools and any other language was banned so konkani was banned so you don't have any written literature anymore in the language but it was also a language of power as opposed to a language of the lower social strata in the other places and so you see a different kind of impact because it occupies a higher social status in goa speaking portuguese living a certain way of life is just associated with certain social status yeah it's so fascinating that you brought up the enclave of korlai because i have a question and uh, leading up to this question i'm going to just build a little historical background 1739 chimaji appa cousin of peshwa bajirao marathas led the forces hordes 100000s of them uh laid siege to basin and uh, ousted the portuguese from there after defeating them after a three month siege uh, he allowed the portuguese safe passage to bombay okay and uh, what the portuguese did was they sought asylum with the british uh, they assumed that goa would be sending ships up to bombay to pick up all of the previous occupants of the fort the portuguese occupants of course uh, the british kept them in the fort under suffrage the women and children were allowed to stay there but the men there was no food there were no rations so the men had to proceed on foot to goa because ships at this point were not coming in from goa because they were kind of preoccupied with the insurrection of the bosleys so when they reached chaul when they reached korlai uh, chimaji appa absolutely massacred the entire portuguese contingent over there and he kept to his word he said i'm granting you safe passage to bombay to the british fort over there nobody said nothing about chaul so you guys came on this territory it's now maratha lands the konkan have reclaimed it in the name of peshwa bajirao and not allowed here the question i have is this is basin and this is chaul both of them seem to have fallen at a very similar time basin as far as i know there are little to absolutely no portuguese speakers but they seem to have survived in chaul they seem to have survived in korlai how do you explain the differential patterns of linguistic evolution at these places despite the fact that their colonial rulers seem to have existed at around the same time so uh, i can't speak for chaul or basin but i can speak for korlai 
So the thing with Korla is, if you look at this particular community in question, as I mentioned, they are essentially the illegitimate offspring of the Portuguese soldiers uh, who manned uh, the fort or traders who were there at that time. And the thing is that they become isolated from the rest of the social system. They're isolated, but at the end of the day, it's identity that plays an important factor. Between 1740 till, till the end of uh, the, the Portuguese rule in India, these people have little to no contact with Portuguese speakers, with the exception of the Goan priests who might have come in at any given point of time to the church that is still there. And the thing is that, so for this community, they are isolated. They cannot intermarry with any of the other surrounding communities because they are of a different religion. They cannot intermarry with the other strata of the caste system, again, because they are part of a certain caste and they are one of the lower rungs because of the strict social caste system that was followed by the Portuguese at the time. But identity is basically your answer. It is a huge identification factor. So you're basically looking at what starts as a pigeon between speakers of Marathi and Portuguese who have offspring and they learn a pigeon, sort of an early form of language where you have where two languages meet and then because the pigeon is their first language it gains complexity over time and that creole uh, develops the portuguese leave they have no contact and that that isolation actually is what helped their particular creole survive and one of the other things that helped it survive is that they were completely isolated from the neighboring areas so now you have the rave dunda bridge that connects korlai to the other side so you have the bridge, you have Maharashtra becoming a state, people now being able to go to Rave Danda and they're able to go to Bombay and so you can intermarry. So they're leaving their community. And so you see an influence of other languages coming in, but that uh, their language, the, the Portuguese Creole, which became a language at some point, remained intact for those two centuries. So geographic isolation. Both geographic and social isolation. It makes sense that you buy the contact geography of two places, yeah, because uh, Basin's proximity to Mumbai compared to, say, Korlai, and the fort at Korlai is absolutely fascinating. It's like this just this one strip of two walls. It's like built on a ridge. It's, uh, the view is absolutely stunning from the top of the fort. But given the proximity, because now I'm looking at communities, you're talking about this Korlai Creole community, I'm looking at the East Indians who seem to have while they still maintain, you know, fishes like which they have in common with the bones, like the pork sorbatel, the pork vindaloo, and I don't know why people call it vindaloo. I mean, what's vindaloo? Uh, vindaloo <laughs> is an anglicized version of vindaloo, but yeah, yeah. it's not vindaloo. It's it's vindaloo. I mean, my friend asked me where's the where the hell is the aloo? There's no aloo in it. Why do you call it vindaloo? I I have, I have had a lengthy discussion with another friend who was convinced that it was an aloo and was trying to convince everybody else that the that the original recipe has uh, batata in it. Speaking of potatoes. Exactly. Wonderful. This is perfect because I wanted to bring up potatoes. <laughs> Excellent segue for Akash. My, my favorite thing on the planet, <laughs> potatoes. Potatoes. Akash, who, who bought the potato to India? The Portuguese, exactly. Batata. The Portuguese. Yes, there you go. So when Kurush Dalal talks about uh, food archaeology or culinary histories, he starts off his lecture by asking his audience, have you had your Portuguese breakfast this morning? You know, people are such, what is it like chorizo, some nice sunny side up eggs or whatever. But he's like, no, the vada pav. Because the vada pav, the potato, 
the chili and the pao were all brought to india by the portuguese and also cha cha yeah i mean without that all you have is deep fried besan and maybe a little bit of mustard seeds but uh, whatever saying was the eastern indian community having more anglicized or marathiized like gone back to the marathi roots uh, because you don't see in the east indian dialect of marathi as many portuguese words as there is say in goan konkani again it's the duration of occupation but they seem to have almost completely disappeared from east indian marathi you know and that's very interesting i mean i love the study because what would you classify the present inhabitants of korlayas i mean you have goans you have mingloreans you have east indians east indians spread all over palghar thana bandra the salsa island korlay i wonder like how do you classify these guys or are they just you know korlites they're just uh, i guess yeah but they're not the only community right they they are the agrarian community of korlay so they are the christians and uh, the catholics and then you have the fishing community uh, that you mentioned earlier who also uh, share the area but of course uh, they never really merged so to speak but yeah and while the korlay uh, speakers speak marathi the marathi speakers don't it's just a question of social power at the end of the day of any language and uh, also speaking of influence of one language on another so it's interesting to see that in korlay you have mainly portuguese vocabulary uh, which consists mainly portuguese vocables but you have a huge influence of phonology and a huge influence of syntax of marathi on their portuguese but in goa the goan portuguese you have phonological influence but the lexical influence the inverse lexical influence does not take place the reverse doesn't take place you just have portuguese influence on konkani and that's just the domination of one over the others one of the most interesting communities that i came across during field work in vasai was a community that really i didn't know existed and we not a lot of people know of their existence apparently there are only 9000 of them worldwide they are called the samavedi christian they are east indian and they are christians and they are brahmins they require a lot more anthropological work to be done about their community but it's absolutely fascinating to see how these have sort of been assumed and absorbed into the christian fold and how they sort of reintroduced themselves to their more traditional habits and roots and and it's happened over generations it's not one lifetime that's the bizarre part you know i mean i can be 20 convert to christianity and i can be 40 and reconvert and have my roots reestablished but what what happens when it's your great great grandfather who converted and it's all you've known all your life and then suddenly to change your culture altogether into something else and it's fascinating to know about these kind of communities their language their habits their overall culture this is a recent community you're talking about or you discovered it recently is what you're saying i discovered it recently and there is one phd work that has sort of been published in a book simply called the east indian christians done by one lc baptista in 1908 so it was a fairly old phd work and uh, she mentions the samavedi christians but i didn't refer to her work till i actually came across them in the small little village of buigao which is just north of the main vasai gaon which is not fort we were actually looking for remnants of what could have been the ancient port of sopara and this is what field work gives you know it's absolutely fascinating we are looking for the port of sopara we tripped on a tree route found a medieval shivrai coin and found samavedi christians but i think uh, religious uh, syncretism is like typical to india 
and something that we see everywhere, right? And I think it's also, it's something that sets apart the Catholic missionaries from the later evangelical missionaries in the sense that their need to integrate people was more important than sort of rooting out the traditional customs. So there was a sort of, you know, you kind of just take the older customs into the fold. And so you have this rich diversity of uh, traditions and customs. So uh, a Roman Catholic from Rome uh, and a Roman Catholic from South America, a Roman Catholic from Goa or even uh, Kerala for that matter, they were to meet. They would just all be calling each other out on their uh, blasphemy, you know, because <laughs> we're all really being blasphemous to each other, of course. Like, but the, Sorry, the fun thing about the Portuguese is that they had absolutely no hang-ups with cohabiting with the local population. The British, on the other hand, love the exclusivity. It's us and y'all, you know. So uh, we have a certain position, y'all have a certain thing. We are not going to push on the, you know, the religious front. And I wonder whether that's because British, again, from the East India Company, which was largely a commercial enterprise, when it passed on to the British crown, you had the crown, which was also governed by a, a constitutional monarchy. It, it, it had a parliament, you know, making these decrees and popular opinion often won the day back home in England. So whether they maintained, but on the other hand, when it comes to Portugal and Portuguese empire, it was all about the conversion, cohabiting existing culture and uh, establishing that which is known, the Roman Catholic Iberian culture. I mean, what is a perfect visualization of this is I think the temple we went to in uh, Goa, you know, it's a Saptamatrika temple wherein one of the deities is Mother Mary. So that's the church in Mapsa, right? That is a really cool, uh, it's a great story because it, it begins with the creation of Goa and the, the legend of um, Parshuram. Uh, so the legend of Parshuram shooting the arrow, which leads to the creation of uh, Goa. And uh, there he goes along with his uh, seven sisters. And uh, they all settle in various parts of Goa. These are the seven deities. And uh, it's lovely to see how uh, the kind of stories people have told each other to sort of be able to live together. You know, so like back in the day, they're like, okay, so there were seven sisters. These Portuguese people come along. They were good for a while. They were ugly for a while. And then they were good again. But, you know, one of the sisters was converted because how else do you make sense of this, right? Like, And this is one of those stellar examples of if the deity is replaced by another figurine, um, she is just taking on another form. And um, so anthropologists also talk about this in uh, Europe, which is why in Roman Catholicism, one, it became so popular and it worked so well because it took everyone in, but also the figure of the Our Lady becomes so important to people because a lot of the previous religions had some mother figure. This new mother figure just replaces the old one and it's not very difficult to, to do that. And in Goa, so there was one of the seven deities in Mapsa. It had something to do with miracles or remedies and things. It's essentially, the, when you, if you the sick will go to pray for a miracle or for change of heart by the gods. So, um, yeah, so she's uh, become the Our Lady of Miracles. The interesting thing is that these, the seven temples, including this church, so the seven kind of still coordinate and you have this old tradition of sending each other flowers and oil, which is very much part of the Catholic rituals and rites here, oil and flowers. I don't know what's the case in other parts of India, but yeah. And uh, there's another small chapel in the south of Goa, uh, well, so, which is the chapel of the Our Lady of Remedies again. 
And so the thing is that whenever you have these feasts of the temples or the churches, you have people of both faiths who visit the, the places of worship because at the end of the day, uh, they build them to be sisters. And I think there's a similar story in Kerala of the Our Lady and a local deity being considered sisters. It's quite a common thread that runs across. It's, it, it's pretty cool. It's really great, actually. And sometimes in Kokan, a Sufi peer is designated as the brother of the village deity or something like that to form these connections. So that shows us how people, at least along the coasts, have always been open to new things. And this is a continuous process we see not only there but in various parts of South Asia. And I guess on that note, let's call it a day. Let's go have our Portuguese chai and our Portuguese pau, and our Portuguese potatoes, and Portuguese chili. So, as long as you're having your potatoes and your chilies and your pau, just know that there's a bit of Portuguese in all of us. Catch you next time. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Andre. That concludes our wonderful three-part series, Boats, Banners, and Beyond, where we looked at other colonialism in South Asia that we don't talk about much, the Portuguese. There were other colonial powers in India then, but let's save it for a discussion for other time. So if you like this multi-part analysis of the Portuguese occupation in South Asia, and you'd like us to look at more of such topics and go in-depth in multi-layered episodes, do let us know. You can join us at Instagram and also Twitter at ChippinAwayIND and also write to us on email at ChippinAwayIND at gmail.com. Till next time, keep chipping away. Mm-hmm.